This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. You ready to study God's Word together this morning? Turn to the book of 2 Timothy. And as you're turning to the book of 2 Timothy, I'm going to tell you there are going to be some similarities today as we experienced a couple of weeks ago as we walked through the second book of Peter. The last few weeks we have been doing these overview studies of different books in the Bible and I hope you've been encouraged by it. I hope that it's even instructed you in some different ways uh, through which we can study the Word of God. And a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the second letter of Peter to the church at Rome, I laid out for you how this was basically Peter's last will and testament, that this was the last letter that we have from him before he died. And in that letter, he knew that he was going to be dying soon. And as a result of that, the words that he writes to the church at Rome had much more of a gravity and weight to them because these were some of his last words to them. Much the same way the book of 2 Timothy is for the Apostle Paul. Now, if you don't know a lot about the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. That meant that he grew up a very religious guy. He was very well trained. He knew the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. This guy knew all the religious customs, all the rituals of the day, but he missed the most important thing, which was the truth about Jesus Christ. This guy was so zealous for his religious beliefs and thought that he was doing the right thing that he even put Christians to death, killed Christians, stood over them as they died, and thought that he was doing a service to God. But God on the Damascus Road, encountered Paul personally, and he changed his life personally and very radically. Paul would go on to be one of the core leaders of the New Testament church in the first century. He would plant churches all across Asia Minor, in in Europe and in Asia, and Paul would be one of the greatest missionaries that that evangelical Christians would ever know. Paul has been imprisoned for his faith multiple times. He would preach He would go into a town and preach. He would be imprisoned. He would be released. He would preach. He would be imprisoned again. Paul would be what we would call in our 21st century America a repeat offender. And he would not be shaken in his faith in Jesus Christ. And here Paul is again in a Roman prison, but this time probably never to be released again. Now along the way, Paul had befriended a young man named Timothy. And it's very fitting that we would look at this passage today on this Father's Day because Timothy became his son in the faith. And Paul calls him that throughout the New Testament. He had very strong affections for this young man. He adopted him as his own and he trained him up to take the, basically the, the keys to the church whenever Paul would leave. And so Paul writes to Timothy here, this last will and testament, for at least three reasons. Number one, this letter is going to remind Timothy of his devoted love and affection for him personally. Secondly, he's going to be warning Timothy not to be deceived by false teachers and not to give up in the face of opposition or persecution. And thirdly, Paul is going to give Timothy an example of what it means to finish well. To finish well in the faith and also to finish well as a servant of God. And so 
as we start our study today, I'm going to read the first eight verses of chapter one, and then we're going to dive in and learn what Paul would teach us today about enduring in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not for a year or two, or not just when it's really comfortable or easy for us, but to endure in the gospel of Jesus Christ through good times, through hard times, and to do that all the way to the end until we see Jesus Christ face to face. He begins in verse 1 of chapter 1, and he writes this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So this morning, we're going to do a big picture helicopter overview of this short New Testament letter, 2 Timothy. I'm going to show you at least six things that Paul teaches us about enduring in the gospel all the way to the end. And here's the first thing that we're going to learn from his example and his writing. The road of discipleship will be difficult. The road of discipleship will be difficult. Now there there is a mantra that floats around in the western side of this world where you and I live that when we become a Christian, that everything is easier. That everything is simple. And that only comfort, wealth, health, and prosperity exists. If you espouse that kind of faith, you must have a different New Testament than I possess. Because it's simply not what the New Testament writers write. Instead, they write that our faith in Jesus Christ, the road is going to be difficult. And oftentimes, when we become Christians, things don't get easier for us Sometimes it actually gets more difficult. And Paul writes about this here. I'm going to go through here very quickly, but but I want to show you all the places that Paul talks about suffering for the gospel. Suffering because he was a Christ follower. Beginning in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, Share in suffering for the gospel. In verse 12 of chapter 1, he goes on uh, to say that, Uh, This is why I suffer as I do. In chapter 2, verse 3, he tells them again, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Look at verse 9. He says, this is why I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. You go over to chapter 11. uh, Sorry, chapter 3, verse 11. He says, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. And if you go back and read the book of Acts, 
you can read accounted these sufferings and how Paul was imprisoned for the gospel, how he was beaten for the gospel. Paul suffered for Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 5, he says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering. And then you go down to verse 14. It gets very personal for Paul. Because it wasn't just that he experienced suffering at the hands of authorities. He also experienced suffering from the lives and the words of very close companions along the way. He says in verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He talks about others in this letter of those who had deserted him and walked away from him and shamed him because of his sufferings in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in this letter that the road of discipleship will be difficult. D.A. Carson, the great New Testament theologian, says this, Paul is clear that the cost of discipleship may be great. He speaks of suffering, both his own and that of other believers. He leaves Timothy in no doubt that while our salvation is a free gift from God, it is also demanding. In living out its implications, the believer is going to run into difficulties and will find that the God who sent his son to die on the cross is always served at cost. Actually, chapter 3, verse 12, sums up the more than 10 times in this letter that Paul talks about suffering as a Christian. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is actually fulfilling what Jesus told his disciples themselves before he went away, that we would experience hardship, we would experience suffering, and we would experience opposition because of our faith in the gospel. Now, we don't always experience this at the same level in the United States of America. And a lot of that we should be thankful for, for the most part. But we should not assume that because Christians in America have experienced protection in a lot of ways and not experience such harsh opposition for our faith, that somehow that this is what is normal. Like we do ourselves a huge disservice when we think that. When you look through the, the annals of church history, you go all the way back to the first century, many of these first century apostles would actually die for their faith just like Jesus was put to death. You get to the second century, those disciples of the apostles, they would experience opposition. I think about the, the early church father, Polycarp, who was taken to his death and burned at the stake in the middle of a, of a Roman arena. And he went to his grave and went to the stake singing in praise of Jesus Christ. I think about coming all the way to the 20th century, martyrs like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, who were killed by an Ecuadorian tribe for, for the sake of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were there to share the gospel and the tribe killed them as a result. I think about even a very personal example for me. I remember being in East Asia a couple of years ago and meeting my, my sister Monica, who was a devout follower of Jesus, who was the only follower of Jesus in her entire family. And she talked about how her family had disowned her in so many different ways and wanted nothing to do with her anymore because... She had placed faith in Yahweh of the Bible. And I think about some of you. 
You may not face a stake today in, in the flames of fire. You may not face a firing squad or you may not face a gun to your head because of your faith. But I think about many of you who you've experienced opposition from your mom and dad. You've experienced a little bit of chastisement from brothers or sisters or roommates or friends. And I want you to know this morning that Paul teaches us here that that's normal. And not only is it normal, we should expect it as Christians. And though we may not have experienced at the same level as many in other parts of the world or throughout history have experienced, one day we might. And when we do, don't be surprised by that, but recognize that the New Testament writers talk about this frequently. So Paul tells us, in trying to endure for the sake of the gospel, this is going to be difficult, the road's going to be hard, and so don't expect comfort and ease. A second truth that we learn is that even in the midst of that, God will supply everything you need to persevere. If you're going to persevere all the way to the end, Paul's going to make it very clear to us in this letter that it's not going to be because we somehow mustered up enough courage and perseverance and we're somehow better than those who didn't. No, what he's going to make clear is, is that if we're going to make it all the way to the end, it's something that God is going to do inside of us and through us because he's going to give us a lot of resources through which to persevere. And I'm going to show you some of these very quickly. I'm going to give you six things at least in this letter that Paul tells us that God gives us to help us persevere all the way to the end. Number one, he gives us his gospel. He gives us his gospel. You see this when you go to verses, uh, verse 8 in chapter 1. He says, Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Paul is telling us is that same gospel we believe to become a Christian is the same gospel for which we suffer as a Christian and the same gospel that's going to empower us in the midst of that suffering as a Christian. He gives us his gospel. Number two, he gives us his grace. You look at chapter two, verse one. He tells Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That word grace is that undeserved merit, that undeserved gift, that undeserved empowerment that God gives. And what Paul's telling us here is that grace is not just something we're saved by. It's also something we are strengthened by all the days of our lives. He gives us his grace. Number three, he gives us his power. He gives us his power in chapter 1, verse 7. He says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. When you face hardship, and you face opposition for being a Christian, it is very tempting that in those moments that you would cower back in fear and you would placate, that you would waver, that you would go silent. But, but Paul says that the gospel that God has given to you, that the gospel by which God has saved you, that same gospel, God did not give you a spirit of fear and timidity and cowering in the middle of that. Instead, the spirit who lives inside of you is a spirit of power. So he gives us his power to face these things. Number four, he gives us his spirit. 
He gives us his spirit, chapter 1, verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is huge. You see what he's saying here? He doesn't say endure all the way to the end and guard the gospel in you by the power that you just have on your own as if you're going to go down to a spiritual gym on a daily basis and just strengthen your own power. No, he says be strengthened by the grace of God, right, in chapter 2. And then he says guard this gospel by what? The Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you. You see, it's not just that God is for us. It's not just that in Jesus' coming that God was with us. It's that now because of what Jesus has done and has left to be with the Father, now we have God in us. The power of the Holy Spirit. And so he gives us his spirit. Fifth, he gives us his word. He gives his word. I want you to see this in a couple of places. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says, I am suffering, yes, I'm bound with chains as a criminal. I don't know about you, but that's not good news, right? It doesn't matter if it's the first century in Rome or if it's the 21st century in the good old U.S. of A. Being bound by chains as a criminal is not good news. And it would be tempting to think that because we are imprisoned for the gospel, that we are in chains for the gospel, that somehow God is defeated And we got to figure out somehow to win this thing because God's in danger. Look at what he says. I'm in chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. The word of God is living and it's active. You go over to chapter 3 and we have what is some of the most definitive verses in all of the Bible about the word of God. In verse 16, here's what Paul says about Scripture. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul is telling us, you want to persevere to the end. You want to endure. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to give you God's word. God's word is going to be the tool by which you can persevere. And lastly, he gives us, and this is kind of surprising to us, he gives us his people. He gives us his people. Now, you guys hear me talk all the time about how radically individualistic we are in the United States of America. And the reason I do that is because it's important for us to constantly contrast what we experience and know as normal here And judge that against what God says is normal in his word. We don't have an individualistic faith. God saves us in a very personal manner. But he saves us in a very personal manner to attach us to a very corporate Christian experience. Meaning his church. And I'm mesmerized by how many times Paul talks about other people in this letter. And what a strength they are to him. Start at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved child. My beloved child. Go down to verse 16. He mentions Phygelus and Hermogenes, who were of great benefit to him. You go to 
chapter 4, and he starts mentioning a lot more names. Chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Luke alone is with me. Go get Mark and bring him with you because he is very useful to me for ministry. He talks about Crescens. He talks about Tychicus. He talks about uh, other people. You get to chapter 4, verse 19. He says, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. He talks about Erastus. He talks about Pudens and Linus and Claudia. Now, these are all names that we don't really use much more anymore, but they were real people. They existed and they were great comfort to him. They were encouragement to him. And brothers and sisters, today, that's the reality. As a pastor, I I grieve so often when I watch disciples trying to make it as a Christian. And they're trying to stay strong. And they're, and they're trying to persevere, but they isolate themselves from the Christian community. And you may be here today and you're tempted to be one of those people to just kind of take and leave the church as you see fit. But Paul's great example here is if we're going to persevere all the way to the end and honor God and be faithful to this gospel of Jesus Christ, God has given us people by whom we can be strengthened receive encouragement, and to stay on that narrow road all the way to the end. So here's here's the truth this morning. The road of discipleship will be difficult for you, but God will give you everything you need to persevere. Here's a third truth that we learn from the book of 2 Timothy. As you seek to endure to the end, people will try to deceive you. People will try to deceive you. Now, we saw this also in the book of 2 Peter a couple of weeks ago when we looked at his last letter, right? There are going to be false teachers. False teaching is so important to the New Testament writers that you see it in almost every letter written in the New Testament. I would encourage you, like if you really want to see a cool exercise, just start reading Romans and going all the way through 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Jude. Like, Look at all of those letters written in the New Testament. You're going to find mentions or warnings about false teachers all the way throughout. And so it's only fitting that we saw this at the Church of Rome through Peter's writing two weeks ago. Now we're seeing it at the Church at Ephesus through Paul's writing as he gets to the end of his life. People will try to deceive you. And this has been the reality ever since Jesus Christ himself walked on planet Earth. And as he passed the influence to his apostles, you see it all throughout the first century. And we have seen it ever since. Now, where do we see this in the text? Look with me at chapter 3. And look at the contrast between verse 12 and verse 13. We've already seen verse 12, but I'm going to read it again. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. There are going to be spiritual leaders. There are going to be people who sound very Christian, Paul tells us. And they're going to deceive you. And they're going to try, and some of you will be deceived, But for most of you, you stand strong and resist that would be his warning. Now, here's what we need to know about deception. Some deception is subtle. Some deception is subtle. 
false teaching and spiritual deception is not always cloaked in a guy with a red face, a black cape, and horns. Some of it is very subtle. Look with me at chapter 2, at verse 14. He says to Timothy, Remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Do you see what was going on in Ephesus? There were guys in the church who were arguing about theological matters. And they were going around and they were telling the brothers and the sisters that the resurrection of Jesus Christ at the end, meaning that our resurrection had already taken place, And perhaps they were saying things like, so for those of you who are here, you're just left, you missed out. We don't know all the details of what they were saying, but what they were doing is they were taking Christian doctrine and they were bringing it into the church and they started having mindless debates and endless discussions about them and the discussions went so far that they actually started leading people astray. You see, some some deception is subtle. It sounds good. We're arguing over things like, does God choose us for salvation or do we choose for ourselves? We find ourselves arguing over matters about the end times. Like, well, will the rapture happen then? Does the rapture even exist? Like, there, there are things that we debate about those things. There, there are so many spiritual matters that we can debate about and get caught up in that if we're not careful, it can actually lead younger believers astray. And that's what was going on in Ephesus. And one of the truths that we should pull from this is we should be very careful about how much we argue about things that are not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to stay focused on the main thing and let the main thing be the main thing. It's not that other doctrine doesn't matter. I love doctrine. I love theology. I read constantly. But I always want to be careful that my theological debates and my theological arguments are not going to weigh down young believers and actually lead them astray because it's something that either A, they're not ready for, or B, I'm just making a much lesser thing the ultimate thing. So some deception is subtle. Some deception also is obvious. And we see that in 2 Timothy as well. You get down to chapter 4 and you look at verse 3. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Brothers and sisters, we see this going on all around us today. We're redefining morality. We're redefining sexuality. We're redefining issues about image of God. And there are things culturally that even a majority of opinion may hold to. 
literally matters of life and death. And it's very tempting for us as human beings to want to be a part of the majority crowd. I have to be very honest and vulnerable with you this morning. I believe the scriptures of God wholeheartedly with everything that's inside of me. And I pray to God for the endurance to make it all the way to the end. And I want you to know that when I stand before you, it is my duty, it is my charge, it is my calling to teach you the word of God with both passion and with truth. But I want you to know that I'm a human being too. And when I look at all the voices around me saying that this is what is right or this is what is true and what you're espousing is wrong, I am so tempted to soften the message. I'm so tempted to placate. I'm so tempted. You know why? Because I'm just like any other human being. I like to be liked. Just like you like to be liked. There may be some of us in the room who are just troublemakers and who just like to stir the pot. But I'm not sure that any of us just enjoy being at the Father's Day table today and just wanting to be the dissenting opinion I don't know many people who just love being the one person in the room who is saying something different in the midst of my squad, right? We don't love that. We don't embrace that. But we know what the truth says. And what Paul tells us is there is some who are buying into the endless myths and are buying into the redefinitions and buying into what even majority opinion are saying. And Paul tells us in chapter 4 that it even shipwrecks their faith and pulls them away from the gospel altogether. And brothers and sisters, some of this deception is so obvious. It's so obvious that it's contrary to God's scriptures. But we need to be alerted to that just as much as we are to the subtleties. But here's the reality. Whether it is subtle deception... Whether it is obvious deception, all deception is dangerous. All deception is dangerous. Now, that's not what culture would teach you today. Culture would just tell you that, look, this is just a matter of opinions. This is just about being diverse. This is just about being tolerant in matters of sexuality, but also matters of spirituality. All roads lead to heaven. All religions are valid ways to seek God. We're all just trying to find our way. And as long as we all just take our different paths up the mountain, as long as we get to the top of the mountain, what does it matter, right? That's what culture teaches us. But Paul would tell us that this deception and these distortions are very dangerous. I'm going to show you three verses here. Chapter 2, verse 14. He says that these things do no good but only ruins the hearers. That is strong language. It says that it ruins the hearers. If you go to verse 16 of chapter 2, he goes on to talk about the irreverent babble, saying that it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And then when you look at verse 23 of chapter 2, he says this, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And God has not called us to breed arguments or quarrels, but to be peacemakers and to be self-controlled. So heed the warning this morning, brothers and sisters. People will try to deceive you along this road of discipleship. Make sure 
that you heed those warnings and recognize the danger of deception. Number four, so since people will try to deceive you, stay faithful to God's word. Stay faithful to God's word. I recognize in the 21st century, among a very educated people, among a very enlightened people, among a very globally minded people, that it seems on the surface that what the Bible teaches us is simply archaic and antiquated. And as a society, haven't we progressed from the oppressive teachings from documents that are hundreds and even thousands of years old? From a human standpoint, on the surface level, that seems legitimate. I get it. I get why you would say that. I get where that would come from. But here's what the argument misses. The argument misses the fact that you and I are not God. The argument misses the fact that if we're going to operate in that way, what we're basically saying, that human beings are the masters of their own destiny. And that moral truth and standards of living are defined by whatever the majority opinion is by that particular culture in that particular time. And that may work well for us today, but if you were an African-American living in the rural South in the 1850s and 60s, I'm not sure that would have worked out well, right? Because we recognize what happens when human beings are just left to define things as they want by majority of opinion. It hurts a lot of people. And we're still seeing the after effects of that more than 150 years later. You see, what it misses is unless there is an objective standard for what right and wrong is, an objective standard for what human behavior is, we are left at a whim in any given moment, in any time of history, to define it for ourselves. And humans throughout the centuries have proven very unreliable sources to define it for ourselves. And so what Paul tells us is that in the midst of the deception, in the midst of what humans may say, stay faithful to God's word, regardless of the century and regardless of the hemisphere. Look at where he tells us this. Look at the contrast. If you go to chapter 2, look at the contrast now between verse 14 and verse 15. He says, sorry, verse 13 and verse 14. He says, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, it's not exactly the same. But I want you to recognize that when Paul was writing this to Timothy, the sacred writings would have been the Old Testament. And do you know that there would have been a, about as much time between the writing of the Old Testament as Paul's writing to Timothy in the New Testament as it is from the New Testament days to us today? Now, not exactly. There's a little bit more distance between the New Testament and us than some of the books from the Old Testament to Timothy. But here's the big picture. It would have been hundreds of years of writing. It would have been written hundreds of years ago. And Paul is telling Timothy to stay faithful to the sacred writings from the past. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for you and me today. 
We are to be faithful to the sacred writings from hundreds of years ago, even two millennia ago, because it's God's word and we're to be faithful to it. You go on down and you look at verse 2 of chapter 4 and he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Here it is. Some people are going to deceive you, but you stay faithful to God's word. That's our command. That's our command. Five, not only stay faithful to God's word, Timothy, not only stay faithful to God's word, 21st century Christian, but also stay faithful to God's mission. Stay faithful to God's mission. Now here's the picture. Timothy is now leading the church at Ephesus. Now Timothy learned from Paul. Everything Timothy knows about the gospel, about leading the church primarily, he has learned from Paul. Paul is in prison. Paul is about to die. If you're Timothy, what in the world does that mean for you now? Your lifeline is about to go. And now you're this 30-something-year-old young leader in Ephesus. What do you do? This is so key. Chapter 2, verse 2. He says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And look at the contrast there between 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, from us, for us from a human standpoint, we are so tempted to focus on me and my relationship with Jesus. God, give me grace to endure the struggles and suffering of this Christian walk, right? Now, that's not wrong. It's not wrong at all to focus on that. The problem is so many of us Focus on that alone. And we presume that what God wants from us is just simply to be faithful ourselves and just simply to bask in the grace of God that he's extending to us. But look at the contrast. He says, you be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, comma, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, you entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Friends, this is the heart of the Great Commission. The heart of the Great Commission is not just simply going to share the gospel so that people can hear it and to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Is that a part of the Great Commission? You betcha it is. But oftentimes we get that part, but we miss the part that the Scriptures tell us in Matthew 28 that the Great Commission is to make disciples And then Paul's going to elaborate that on further. Paul's basically saying, not just make disciples, you make disciple makers. You make disciple makers who can also make disciples. This also goes back to the whole people aspect of what God gives us. Is that when we're lonely, and when it seems like we're fighting alone, what Paul is telling Timothy is, you go find a buddy. You go find somebody to get in the trenches with you. And you teach them to follow and you teach them to endure so that you're not doing it just by yourself. You're doing it in partnership and then your efforts for mission are multiplied. So brother and sister, the same for you and me today. I wonder if there are a lot of people in the room. You do really well with understanding that God wants to give his grace to you. But you're missing the fact that he wants to use you to give his grace to others 
And he wants to use you, yes, even you, to be a disciple maker and to raise someone up to be a leader in his church as well. So stay faithful to God's word. Stay faithful to God's mission. And the last thing that Paul's going to tell us here, I believe, and by the way, there are more things he tells us, but there are only so many we can look at in 45 minutes. The last thing that we're going to look at that Paul teaches us about enduring all the way to the end is as you are suffering and as you are receiving everything that God's giving you in order to persevere, as you are being on guard against deception, and as you are staying faithful to God's word, as you are staying faithful to his mission, by God's grace, finish well. Finish well. The, way, the reason I love 2 Timothy is because we get a glimpse at a life who finished well. Paul did not start his spiritual journey well. Remember, this was the guy in a pharisaical way who was standing over Christians as they were being killed for their faith. Paul did not start well spiritually, but he finished well spiritually. You want to see it? Look with me at chapter 4. Look with me at chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. That means that he's about to die, and he is offering his life as an offering to God. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know what really makes this special is that Paul had been through some stuff. Paul had been hurt. He had been hurt physically for the gospel. His back had the stripes and the scars. He had suffered emotionally. He had suffered relationally. So many people had deserted him and slapped him in the face along the way. People just turning their back on him. And here he is yet again in a prison for this gospel that he surrendered his life to. But yet this death and this departure is so hope-filled. It's because he could see something spiritually that often we can't see physically. The reason why I believe 2 Peter and 2 Timothy are so instructive for us is that there's something about last words, Right? I mean, there's something about when people are on their deathbeds that whatever they say, it's magnified, right? I mean, think about some of your favorite movies and the death scenes in those movies, right? The, the, everything, your heart just starts dropping, right? And then you, you, you start getting chills a little bit and, and the tears start flowing down your eyes because it's just the gravity of the moment and you are met with your own mortality, by those images. I mean, one of the most famous and prolific deathbed scenes in all of cinematic history was the death of our young green friend, Yoda, right? Do you remember the moment in Return of the Jedi? Do you remember the moment? And Yoda, in his wisdom, says, Twilight is upon me, yes, forever sleep. And Luke looks and Master Yoda, you can't die, right? Remember the emotion of the moment? 
And then we get strong wisdom like, strong am I in the force, but not that strong. When 900 years old you reach, look as good, you will not. I mean, such sage wisdom from our little green friend, right? Yeah, 900 years will take its toll on you, Yoda. But the reason why this is so prolific is because Luke is about to hear a lot of things that he hasn't heard before. Not to spoil it for those of you who haven't seen The Return of the Jedi, if there are two or three of you in the room who haven't. But Luke finds out that he has a sister. Luke finds out that he's not the only Jedi left. Luke finds out so many things that are coming, and it's because this moment, Yoda has prepared him for what's about to take place. When people are on their deathbed, there is a heaviness, there is a weight to the moment, yes, there's emotion to it, but also whatever they say, there's going to be gravity, and we need to listen. This is what's happening for Paul with Timothy here. Timothy is having his own Yoda moment in an anachronistic way. Because Timothy's about to be left without his master. Timothy's about to be left without his mentor. And Timothy probably has so many questions about what lies ahead and what does this mean for him? What does it mean for Paul? And Paul shows Timothy how to finish well. And just like Yoda, Paul is basically saying, strong am I in the Lord, Timothy. Yeah, I am strong, but I'm not that strong. I still must face death just as you will. And when these however many years you reach to your death come, look as good, you will not. And what I want you to know is to not fret that moment. I want to give you an example of what's next. And so here's how he demonstrates to us by God's grace to finish well. Brother and sister, number one, you have divine promises. You have divine promises to hold to. And you see this in a couple of places in this letter. In chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says this in, in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul wasn't just shooting from the hip. He wasn't just postulating. Everything that he's saying is based on divine promises from God. And then you get down to chapter 4. We've already read this. But he says in verse 8, Henceforth, because I've kept the faith, because I've finished the fight, race, and because I've fought the good fight... There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Timothy, I have nothing to fear here. And neither do you when your time comes. Brothers and sisters, we, we balk at death as human beings. We don't even want to think about it. And oftentimes when we lose a loved one, I know it hurts. I've lost my share over the years. The loss hurts. You feel that deeply. But oftentimes as Christians, our grief is compounded because we act as if this life is what, the li what life is all about. Paul demonstrates for us that we're made for another life beyond this one. 
And then if you're a Christian, you have nothing to fear. You have divine promises waiting on you. But not only do you have divine promises, you also have human examples. You also have human examples of what it means to finish well. To hold tight and fast to this gospel until you see Jesus face to face. For some of us, that could be next year. For some of us, it may be a decade away or three decades away or it may be 50 or 80 years away. We don't know. But regardless of how long our time here is on earth, God wants us to hold fast to the gospel and endure and persevere all the way to the end. And we have good human examples to look at. For example, you go back to chapter 1 and verse 13. He told Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You look at chapter 3, verse 10. He says again, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, and my persecutions and sufferings. In chapter 4, verses 6 and 8, you see his example of fighting the good fight and running the race. But we also see examples that are less than good. We also see bad examples of not finishing well in this text. For example, in chapter 1, verse 15, you were aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. You see that? An entire church just turned away among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. You look at chapter 2, verse 17, we've already talked about Hymenus and Philetus and their deception in pulling people away. Chapter 4, verse 10, sorry, uh, yeah, for verse 10, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. So what we see is we see human examples of those who have not finished well, and also those who have finished well. And so here's my encouragement to us this morning. Look at those good examples and follow them and emulate them. And look at the bad examples and allow their lives to serve as a warning to you. I've been thinking a lot about this message over the last couple of weeks, knowing that it was coming And I want to talk for a moment to those of us in the room who might have a little bit more gray hair than others, might have a little bit more experience under our belt than others. Um, I don't like using the word old. I don't like using the word old people. I like using the term experienced people, (laughs) seasoned people. And I look at the people in the room who you know that you're 60, 65, 75, even 80 plus years old. And I know that in a congregation like ours, you are not the norm. I know that. And sometimes it's very often to figure out what is my role in a place where an overwhelming majority of the congregation is 30 years old or under. Might I suggest an application from today's message? Brothers and sisters, We have so many young people who come to faith through our church. They understand the gospel for the first time, and 
We baptize them. We send them off on their first mission trips. We watch them rise up and take leadership in our congregation. Here's the thing. We see a lot of young Christians start their Christian race well. But we need, we need brothers and sisters who have been walking with Jesus for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. We need those brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in the faith and grandmothers and grandfathers in the faith to show us how to finish this race well. And so when you read the Bible, read it not just for the sake of you, but read it for the sake of those who are watching you. When you love your wife and you stay married for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years plus, you do that not only for your good, but do it for those who are watching you so that when young married couples who are 20 or 30 and they're struggling in year four or five, they see examples of people who not only started well, but finished well through a lot of ups and downs. You show us how to stay true to the gospel, not only in the first few years, but also in the sunset years of your life. That Jesus Christ is not just worthy of our affections when we're in our 20s, but he's still worthy of our affections in our 70s and 80s. And then for those in a room who are younger, look to those examples and make it your resolute goal today to persevere to the end and finish well. Father, thank you for the beauty of the day. Thank you for the beauty of what this day represents for so many men in the room as fathers and grandfathers. And Father, thank you for earthly men like Paul who give us an example of what it means to finish well no matter how we started. And I pray for those in the room who have not started spiritually well in their lives. And they have a lot of regrets a lot of things they wish they could take back. I pray today that through the power of the gospel that they would know that no matter what they've done in the past or how they've started, that by your grace and empowerment, they can finish well through repentance and faith. And Father, for those in the room who have more years behind them than they have ahead of them, I pray that they would see Paul as a great example. And that if they're tempted to give up and they're tempted to to fall back and just wait this out until you see them face to face. I pray that today that they would be empowered to be faithful, to be obedient, and to be faithful and obedient not only for themselves, but also for those of us who are watching. And I pray that you would give all of us the grace in the room to finish well. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.